Thank you, David, for leading us. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 this morning, so I encourage you to turn your Bible to Romans chapter 13. Before we dig into that text, we're going to dismiss our children who are fourth grade to pre-K, our kids that are in the room with us, to kids crew this morning. They can meet our leaders here at the front, and they will head upstairs for a time designed for them, a time for them to engage with the truth and study the Bible together. Of course, they do that in a way that's fun and interactive, and so do we. Because I know every week you think to yourself, well, that sermon is fun and interactive. And, uh, and, and I so appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way. Romans chapter 13. No, it was the, uh, some years ago, it was the, uh, the prophet theologian John Cougar Mellencamp who sang the, uh, the great treatise of his doctrine, uh, I, fought, uh, I Fight Authority. You know that song? I fight authority, authority always wins, right? And I was thinking about that song, reflecting on that song this week uh, when, when I was thinking of, through this text because uh, this is a text that's all about authority. It's all about the authorities in our lives. And uh, there's a number of things we could point to that, that uh, remind us that we are servants to a higher authority. And, and sometimes the reminder is when we push against that and, and, uh, and we get caught. And sometimes it's when we're, we're driving a little too fast and, and we get found out. Or sometimes it's when uh, we, we make a choice and, 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 you know, it just things fall apart because we didn't choose what was wise and what was good and best. But sometimes we wrestle against authority because we see we see the things in this world as they should be, and we recognize that everything falls short of that somehow. And we see things perhaps as, as what they ought to be, and, and we, we know that, frankly, things in this world aren't as they ought to be in a number of ways. And so we, we are called to be God's people and to wrestle against the darkness and to be the prophets who preach and, and, and bring things into the light of God's justice, even as we just sang about. And I pray that as we wrestle through this text this morning in Romans 13, we will be, we will be reminded of ways that we can do that, but also let it be a reminder to us of the one who truly is in control the one who truly is in charge ultimately in an ultimate sense that we would look to him and follow his plan, his purpose for our lives. So Romans chapter 13, we're going to read together the first seven verses. Read with me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What, what an, an important and really a poignant passage for us to come to as we 
as we understand that God is calling us to respond to the authority in our lives as though it were from him. And, and so this morning, I want, us to, I want us to dig into this together and, and really wrestle because there are some hard truths that we have to contend with as we wrestle through this text. There are some, some important questions that we need to ask ourselves. If we're to submit to authority, do we submit to every authority? What about a good authority? What about a bad authority? These are the kind of things that we'll, we'll work through as we, as we walk through this text this morning. But the, the first and the primary point that we need to see really comes immediately to us in the first verse, the first two verses. And, and that is this, ultimate authority belongs to God. We need to see that ultimate authority belongs to God. And I use those words rather purposefully and, and, and carefully as well. Ultimate authority. So let's define, let's, let's be sure that we define those, those terms clearly this morning. What is ultimate authority? What do I mean when I say ultimate authority? Well, let's just begin with the word authority. We know what authority is, right? If I use the word authority, you're not asking yourself, uh, what is authority? I wonder what authority, you know what authority is, right? We, we, we understand that authority means to be under the under the, the, the command, if we want to use sort of a, a, a military-like term, or, or at least under the supervision, under the leadership, under the influence of someone else, to be under their authority, to be under their, their direction. We all have authorities in our life. The most basic authority we receive, we receive first, early on, right? Parents. God has given us parents. And, and he's given us parents to love us, to guide us, to lead us. Most every parent I know, and, and by the way, for, for the kids who are left in the room, mostly our teenagers who are left in the room, uh, I'm, I'm about to let you in on one of the great secrets that all parents hold. Uh, this is a part of the parent club, and, I, and I'm letting you in on this. And that is that as parents, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. There's so much of life that we're figuring it out as we go. We're, we're, we're trusting the Lord. We're trying to work our way through this. But every parent I know would acknowledge that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time. When I was younger, I just figured out just, and, and this, 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 what I'm about to say really is it goes beyond parenting even. When I was younger, I realized that in life, if you just act confident about something, most of the time people are going to give you the pass. Even if you don't know what you're doing, if you just step into that space and you, and you act kind of confident in that and you just kind of act like you know what you're doing. And so there are a lot of parents who parent that way, right? We just kind of, we, uh, we, 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 we fake it till we make it kind of uh, is, is the motto, or at least that's the the way we operate. But the truth is that we're given authority from the earliest point in life, but as we grow and as our understanding grows and, and we mature, we get older, we realize our parents didn't always know what they were doing, and our parents certainly didn't do always do things that were right. But if we learn anything from our parents, it's to learn that as parents ourselves, when the the tables are turned, so to speak. We too, we're not always going to do what's right. We're not always going to know what we ought to do. And, and, and we can broaden out from there. If we think of the home being the, the, the primary source, the initial point where we learn authority, well, then we, we grow up. And as we grow up, then we go to school. And we learn about authority in school because there are structures in school, right? There are, there are teachers and there are principals and there are other leaders. There are coaches. We, we learn through these structures from people who have some authority, who, who call the shots, who tell us what to do, who guide us, who lead us. 
we get older still and we learn about, we learn about governing authorities. And as, as we grow and, and you get that license and you get some freedom and you start to drive and, and, and you learn that there are rules and, and you, you have to learn to contend with those. And then you get a little bit older and you start to pay taxes and then you get a little bit older still, and you start to, you, you have to contend with, uh, perhaps should I serve in, in, in military, or you, you, maybe, maybe I should serve my community, and, and maybe I should step out, maybe I should take a more active role in, in the leadership or the influence. And, and the more we grow, the more in life we, 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 we wrestle with, and I'm going to use that word, we, we contend with, we wrestle with these authorities. We work with and work under these authorities. But what do we do when we don't like that authority? What do we do when we don't like any authority? What do we do when we've been given, a, 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 in many ways, a, 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 an evil, a wicked authority? What, how do we contend? Well, all of these things are, come as a, a consequence of how we understand this truth first and foremost, okay? In order to answer all of the other questions that we might raise, we have to first contend with this pointed truth. Ultimately, authority comes from God because ultimate authority belongs to God. He is sovereign over all things. He is powerful over all things. He is ruler over all things. He dictates all authorities. And this passage makes it clear that there is no other authority that exists apart from God allowing it to exist. That doesn't mean that every person who's in any position of authority, that what they're doing is that God is, is, is speaking into them and, and controlling them in the way that they're a puppet. That's not the way that it works. But we do understand that wherever we see authority, we see structures that God himself has, has established and ordained and that God himself will use. And so the, what the word calls us to here is to be subject to to be submitted to these authorities, understanding that ultimately they come from God, that God has allowed these authorities in our lives. And so ultimate authority, I told you, let's talk about each of those words. So authority, we understand what authority is. What do I mean when I say ultimate authority? Well, the word ultimate, uh, we might say the greatest authority, highest authority, final authority in that sense. When we think of something that is ultimate, the true meaning of that word is something that is last. That's something that is ultimate, something that is, is, is final. So that final authority, that last authority, the greatest authority rests in God. And he has empowered other authorities. And so we need to understand there is something that is, that is in, innate in us that wants to cast off authority. There's something innate in us that wants, that wants freedom and autonomy. And that's really the, the genesis even of, the, of the, the first sin, isn't it? Think about this. That in all of God's creation and all of God's order and all of God's design, initially with Adam and Eve, that God gave them essentially one rule. Now we think of God and we think of authority and we think of all the rules, but do you see that really a lot of that is a product of the fall itself? Because from the beginning in God's design, there was one rule. God gave Adam and Eve, he gave them subjection over creation. He told them to, he told them to name the animals, to subject the rest of creation, to, 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 to be masters over it. He gave them responsibility. He gave even Adam and Eve authority. And the serpent came along and he tempted them. And what was the temptation that the serpent gave? 
Well, God didn't really say that you shouldn't eat that fruit. That's not, God just didn't want you to be like him. And, and there's the ultimate, that, that initial temptation to sin. That we would want to be like God. That we would want to have ultimate authority. That rather than being subject to God's authority, we want ultimate authority for ourselves. Adam and Eve fell into the trap. They fell, they fell prey to the enemy, to the, to the, the tempter's um, devices. And sin entered into the world. And now, because of the fall, we have a lot of rules and we have a lot of structures. And they're, and they're fallen, just like we are. But the reality is, if we bring it back to, I think that for so many of us, that initial temptation is still the temptation that we wrestle with because at its heart, if we would distill our sin down, if we could try to find what is the common denominator that lies behind sinfulness in our hearts, isn't it that we want to be God? We want to call the shots. We want to dictate. We want to be the one in control. We want to decide. We want to be like God, even as the serpent said to Adam and Eve. And so we seek to have ultimate authority, but we must recognize that we don't have ultimate authority. And all it takes is to walk through some of the hard things in life, and we, we're reminded that we don't have ultimate authority. If we had ultimate authority, then when we get a, a, a bad diagnosis, we could just, we could make it go away, but we can't do that. If we had ultimate authority, when we saw true evil in this world, true evil, and there's plenty of it, then we, could, then we could solve that. We could fix that in a way. But we can't do that. And so we're left to wrestle with, okay, well, if God has ultimate authority, then why isn't he taking care of these problems? Why isn't he doing this? You ever ask those kinds of questions? Well, that'll come to the surface as we go deeper. But the point is, before we can answer those questions honestly, we first have to face this truth. Ultimate authority belongs to God. And for us, real freedom comes through submitting ourselves, subjecting ourselves to God's authority rather than rebelling against it. You see, authority isn't the enemy that we make it. Authority isn't the problem that we would have it to be. Real freedom isn't found in casting off all restraint. Real freedom doesn't come through, through being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, not having to listen to anyone, being your own boss, being in charge. Real freedom comes as we submit ourselves to God and submit ourselves to the structures, the authorities that God has put in place in our life. One of the commentators that I read this week in studying for this said it, you can't rebel against authority and be right with God. And I think that's true. We can't rebel against authority. Now, even that isn't ultimate because there are nuances to how we understand that. We'll deal with it in, in a minute as we get into the other points. But first and foremost, let's understand together. Ultimate authority belongs to God, as it says in verse 1 and 2. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So we need to, we need to respond to the authority in our life, understanding that it is from God. Ultimate authority belongs to God. Second point that I have for us to, to think on and, and understand from this text this morning is that God entrusts his authority to earthly authorities. Verses three and four tell us that. God has entrusted his ultimate authority to earthly authorities. Now, earthly authorities 
are not God. Earthly authorities are fallen. Earthly authorities are, are sinful. Earthly authorities will make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. God isn't fallen. God isn't sinful. He's perfect in all of his ways. But he's chosen in his infinite sovereign wisdom to entrust authority to earthly rulers, earthly authorities, earthly figures. But the reality is that those figures, they represent God's ultimate authority for us. John Stott the, uh, the, the theologian, pastor John Stott has written about this, and, and, and I found this this week actually not through, uh, not first at least through John Stott's writing, but through a sermon that another pastor preached. A, a pastor named J.D. Greer preached a sermon on this text, and he pointed to something in John Stott's writing. So I went then and I found that in John Stott, and this is really good. John Stott says that traditionally there are four types of, uh, of, of ways that we see this relationship between God's authority and our lives as people who exist. Because when we begin to think about the authority in our lives, we, it, it ultimately leads us to understand that we are citizens of a state, citizens of a nation, citizens of a kingdom, subject to those authorities in our lives. And that God has entrusted his authority to these authorities that are over us, governing authorities, authorities who have charge over us, which are the, the authorities of the state. And when I say the state, I don't necessarily mean just the state of Oklahoma. You mean, you understand, I mean the government, right? Government, I'm using that word state in a sense of, of speaking of the different levels of government that exist over us. Stott writes that there are essentially four ways that we see this. First is a theocracy. And so in a theocracy, you have the church controlling the state. Then there's what he refers to as Erastianism. Erastianism, you have the state controlling the church. Now, either that's two sides of the coin that neither work very well. When the church tries to control the state, then the church tries to dictate uh, things within the, the, the realm of the state that fall beyond the reach of the church. And when the state tries to control the church, then the state reaches into things that fall beyond the reach, beyond the realm ultimately of what the state is to be. That's why the framers of our constitution so wisely instituted a system where the state doesn't control the church and the church doesn't control the state. It was later in the Federalist Papers, of course, that you, you may know that it was written about the, the invisible wall of separation between the church and state. We hear a lot about that today, separation of church and state, which is not in the Constitution itself. That comes from the Federalist Papers. But the idea, nonetheless, has to do with the fact that the, our, our United States government, our authority was designed so that we would have not neither a theocracy nor Erastianism, neither the church controlling the state nor the state controlling the church, because the framers of our constitution had history with both, and they found that neither worked well. There's a third type of, of relationship that uh, Stott refers to as Constantinianism, and he gets that from the idea of Constantine. And so Constantinianism is a, is a compromise in which the state favors the church, and the church makes accommodations with the state in order to preserve that favored status. That was what existed in the life of the, the Roman Empire, at least during the reign of Constantine. So Constantine 
was the first, uh, the first good Methodist. And uh, the reason I say, I say that jokingly, but uh, so Constantine decided as he, was, as he was sending off his Roman soldiers into battle that he wanted to Christianize them because he felt that if he could Christianize them, that he would receive God's blessing and that God would bless the Roman army as they went into battle. And so he, he had his, his Roman soldiers march by and he sprinkled water on them. That's where I get the joke about Methodism, right? That he sprinkled them as they marched by. He would, he would, he would t- take a leaf and fling water on them to baptize them as they walked by. Don't tell the Methodists that I'm making jokes on their, uh, to their uh, extent, right? Because that is not at all what Methodists believe. So don't, you know, that was, that was meant to be a, a good Baptist dig. But the point is that the point is that there's this relationship that exists in Constantinianism where the church tries to make certain accommodations to win the favor of the, of the state and the, cert, the state tries to make certain compromises for the state. But, but again, ultimately it doesn't work because the church isn't meant to run the state and certainly the state is not meant to run the church. And so there are compromises and neither one of those authorities are operating in the way that they were designed. But then there's what Stott identifies as the fourth type of relationship, and it's what he just calls a partnership. And that's really what we have. That's the way that our government is designed, what, what Stott refers to as a partnership. And so Stott says, in a partnership, the church and the state recognize that each have distinct God-given responsibilities, and they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling those roles. And that's the way that our system is designed. You understand that in the way that our government is designed, the, the state is not governed by the church, meaning that as leaders in the church, we don't have authority over the state, but it also works the other way around as well. The, 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 the church doesn't dictate to the state what it ought to do. The state doesn't dictate to the church what it ought to do. We're, not, we're neither theocracy nor Erastian. We're not, we're not Constantinian. We're, it's a partnership that's designed to exist. Now, any partnership is only as good as the partners who are involved, right? Any partnership only works as well as the different sides who are in the partnership as they, as they work together, as they seek to do what is right. And even where we can rightly point to flaws and, and, and things in our own culture, in our own system that we would say, oh, but this isn't, I, this isn't operating the way that it should. It's, it's because it, we can point to the partners themselves and say, yeah, but it's, again, it's the brokenness. It's the fallenness of earthly authorities but the point is, what, what we see is that God has instituted a system of authority, and he's granted authority to earthly authorities who are then to govern in a way that is responsible, to govern in a way that is meant to be righteous, to govern in a way that is meant to seek the common good. Does that happen all the time? No, it doesn't. Sadly, it doesn't. But even when we see the breakdown in those authorities— what we recognize is that sin is at the root of that. Sin is the ultimate problem there. And so we preach and we teach and we work against sin. The third point that I want us to see, and this is where we really begin to contend with some of the big questions, the deep questions. Our response then to earthly authority reveals our belief in God's ultimate authority. If we believe that God has ultimate authority and we understand that God has entrusted his authority to earthly authorities, then how we respond to those earthly authorities reveals ultimately what we believe about God's authority. 
doesn't it? Doesn't that, it then, it reveals what we believe about God's power, his authority, his design, his dictates for our life. Will we honor God? Will we seek to live in submission to, subjection to the authorities that he's put in place? Now, there are limits to that, and, and those limits are important. But before we deal with the limits, let's deal with first the greater principle here. And that is that God has entrusted his authority to earthly authorities. We are to be subject to those authorities as unto God. That's what Paul's writing. That's what this teaches us. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So both in order to obey God, both in order to to walk in right fellowship with God, but also for the sake of our own Christian conscience, that we would know we're doing what's right. We need to be subjected to earthly authorities that God has instituted. Because of this, you pay taxes. Why do we pay taxes? Well, because God has designed authority structures, and, and we're to be subject to those. That's what Paul's saying. You pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue, respect, honor. When we read those words, of course, what comes to mind is what Jesus taught, right? The Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. They tried to catch him, and, and, and so they asked him, should we, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, show me a coin, and they show him a coin. Whose face is on that coin? Well, it's Caesar's, right? That was the answer from the audience. And Jesus' response was, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. The point that Jesus is making is, Yes, we may pay our taxes to earthly kingdoms, but our hearts belong to the Lord. As his people, God deserves first place in our heart. Our, our, our God is not money. Our God is not, is not power. Our God is not control. Our God is not government. Our God is the Christ who was crucified for us, who was risen to conquer sin and death, who reigns over our hearts and our lives as we submit ourselves to him. And we are to subject ourselves to his authority and, importantly, to earthly authorities. Now, there are limits to this. And the Bible is full of examples. Even though what Paul writes here seems rather absolute, there are limits. I do not believe that Paul's design in writing to the church in Rome here is meant to be that this is to cover all instances in all situations. And how do I know that? Why do I believe that to be true? Even Paul himself didn't always obey the law. But where, where then... How are we to know when we can obey authorities and not obey authorities? Well, the simple litmus test that I would say is this. this is, and, and, and we derive this from looking at the examples in the Scripture, one of which we'll, we'll, I'll point you to in Acts chapter 5 in just a moment. But the litmus test in the Scripture seems to be this, that it's, it's derived from, it's, it's, it, it extends from that very idea of what Jesus said. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And that is that we are, to, we are to obey the earthly authorities in so much as and in so far as those earthly authorities do not violate God's greater authority in our lives. And so we're to be subject to earthly authorities. We are to be, we are to be obedient to earthly authorities, except in instances where an earthly authority would call us to do something that directly violates God's clear instruction for our lives, the clear will, the clear teaching of Scripture, the, the will of God for our lives. And in such cases, we obey God first. 
In Acts chapter 5, you have the example of the apostles who were charged not to preach the gospel. So they were arrested. They were brought before the ruling authorities that were known as the, 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 the Sanhedrin. And they were, they were beaten and they were charged not to preach the gospel. And their response was this. They said, judge us if you will. Judge us whether it, what we do is right or wrong. But we must obey God rather than men. That's Acts chapter 5 verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. And for us as Christians, as believers today, that needs, to be, that needs to be the principle that we operate by as well. We must obey God rather than men. And so, yes, as Paul says, pay your taxes, be a responsible citizen, follow the laws, don't speed, uh, you know, honor, honor civil laws, do the things that we ought to do. Yes, do all of those things. But when the law would call upon us to violate God's word, then we must obey God rather than men. So let's just cherry pick an issue from the, the, the day and times, right? Let's just cherry pick an issue from what's happening in the world around us and, and, uh, and say, what would we do? How do we respond as a church? What would we do uh, about this? There's any number of things that we could apply that to, but let's just pick a very real thing from, uh, we'll say from the, the day and time, the moment that we live in. What if, what if we were called upon as a church to uh, somehow violate our, violate our beliefs and, and, and let's say that the, the state were to legislate some kind of law that said that as a church, we were required to receive anyone and everyone for membership of the church, regardless of their belief. Even if they held to and espoused certain beliefs, let's say maybe about uh, uh, LGBTQ issues uh, or, or, or some other. There's lots of things we could point that to. And let's say that, that the state were to somehow dictate a law saying that you must do this or you must do that, then we would have to make a decision about will we obey God or will we obey the law? And you might think to yourself, well, uh, that, that wouldn't happen in America. Maybe, but the handwriting seems to be on the wall that they're increasingly these freedoms are, are being stripped and, and taken. But even if that were to happen, even if that were to happen, we must hold to the, the clear teaching of God's word. We must hold to the, the authority of this text and, the, and because of the authority of the one who gave us this text. And we must obey God rather than obeying men. That's where the rubber meets the road for us. You know, what's interesting is that Paul writes this to a people. He writes this to the church in Rome. He writes this to a people who did not serve Christian authorities. If you study the Caesars in Paul's day and Paul's time, they were wicked, awful men. In fact, the man who was Caesar at the time that Paul most likely was writing this was a man who had, uh, he had promoted one of his horses to be a senator and then later promoted that senator to be a proconsul, that horse, a horse. He, uh, he had a, a sexual relationship with three of his sisters. He had family members killed. He would regularly dress in drag. He was, I mean, wickedness to the core, all kinds of things that you could point to in the life. And there are others. There was another, there was another uh, emperor, uh, Caesar, who, who reigned shortly after, Nero. And, and Nero uh, 
most historians believe, set fire to Rome and then blamed the fire on the Christians so that he could rebuild the city and rebuild the temple uh, and, and rebuild these other Roman structures the way that he wanted. He would, remove, he would remove existing works of art and have them replaced with statues of himself, his bust. Uh, Nero would take Christians and would have Christians crucified to line his gardens, supposedly, and set them aflame as human torches to light his garden at night. You talk about wicked authorities. So when Paul writes, he's not writing uh, about Obamacare or something like that, right? Whatever you might think is whatever, right? The issue, I cherry-picked that one. He's writing about something so far worse, so far evil, so far more corrupt and perverse and so you might think to yourself, oh, yeah, but Paul didn't understand. No, listen, Paul understood. I think sometimes we don't get it. And yet Paul is calling these people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I'm using Jesus' words here again, right? And to give to God what is God's. Paul is calling these people to be subject to these earthly authorities. So what do we do if, there's an, if an ungodly authority is over us? Well, we recognize that that authority is responsible to God. And someday everyone in any position of authority, I think will answer to God for what they've done with that authority because that authority comes from God. But we submit to those earthly authorities the way that we would submit to God's greater authority, his ultimate authority. And ultimately how we submit to those earthly authorities reveals what we believe about God's ultimate authority, you see. And when we rebel and when uh, and when those earthly authorities call us to violate our Christian conscience, then we, then we should, as a matter of conscience, we should obey God rather than men. But even in that, even when it becomes our responsibility as citizens of God's kingdom to resist earthly authorities, even then we're to do it in a way that honors God and not just in a way that stirs our human passions. Even then, we're to do it in a way that is respectful to and honoring of God, and not just in a way that just tries to get ourselves fired up and rally people to our cause. Civil disobedience is a real thing. Civil disobedience is something that Christians have practiced throughout uh, th throughout the history of the Christian church. Civil disobedience is something I think that is rooted even in the heart of the scripture itself, Acts chapter 5. And yet even in that, we must obey God in a way that honors God and respects the authorities that he's put in place in our life. So I've given you what I see as four ways that the Christian is to respond to the state. The bottom part of your notes, just the, you see a Christian's response to the state and then four points, two of which are explicit in this and two of which I think are implicit in this. The first and the last, the, the first and the fourth will be the ones that are more implicit, but the second and the third are the ones that I, I believe to be explicit. The first way that we are to respond to the state as, as followers of Christ is influence. Influence. That as God's people, we are called to influence. We are, Jesus, again, says it this way, that we're to see ourselves as salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. That we're to shine our light into the darkness. We're to be the salt that is preserving what is good and pure in this world around us. That we are to be salt and we are to be light. We are to be, we are to be an influence on the world around us. This is why as Christians, as believers, we have to, we must, especially in our American culture, we must exercise our, 
our rights to vote and, and our voice in the culture around us. Yes, we do these things. We must use our influence in a way that would honor Christ as Lord. And so maybe God, not maybe, I know God calls men and women to serve in roles of, uh, roles of authority. He calls them to serve, to run for office, to serve on city council, to serve in, in civic office, to, to serve in state representation, national representation, federal representation, those kind. God calls men and women to serve, to step into those spaces and to serve. But even there, we're called to serve in such a way that we honor God first and we use the influence we've been given to, to point people to what is right. So influence is important. A Christian's response to the state. We're to seek to, to influence others around us. And frankly, if I could say, if there's any place that we can look at the way that Christians have missed the boat, I think it, it begins with this word, influence, that long ago we abdicated our role of influence in the culture around us. And we tried to wall ourselves off somehow, and we tried to create whole, these holy castles where we isolated ourselves from the rest of the world around us. We're called to be an influence in the world around us. Second way that a Christian responds to the state is through obedience. Now, this is one we don't like because we just, something bristles in us at the word obedience. But this is one that is explicit. Verse 5 says, therefore, one must be in subjection. That word subjection means that we are to be under, we are to be subject to, we are to be obedient to the authorities, not only for the sake of avoiding God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. We're to be obedient. A Christian's response to the state is we're to be obedient. Now, again, there are limits to our obedience. When the state calls us to do something that directly violates God's, God's clear instruction, his will, his word, then we obey God rather than men. But this points to the reason why we pay our taxes. This points to the reason why, as Christians, we ought to be the best citizens. We ought to be the ones who seek to always do what is right because we are subject to, obedient to the laws, and in, in even the ones that we don't like. And that we seek to operate in the cultural space around us in a way that we would point people to Jesus that in everything we recognize that even in our obedience, what we're doing is we are demonstrating our submission to God's ultimate authority in our lives. Influence, obedience. A third is this, Christian's response to the state is allegiance. Allegiance. And that's meant to be a word that I think is inclusive of these things like paying, respecting, honoring that are pointed to in verse 7, right? Our allegiance. Now, Hear me when I say this. Our allegiance has its limits. Our allegiance to an earthly kingdom has its limits because our earthly kingdom is not our ultimate kingdom. Our earthly kingdom is just meant to be a reflection of the fact that God has, has instituted authorities over us. But we are, we are citizens of a higher kingdom, First Peter tells us. We are called to be God's people, his kingdom, a holy priesthood who have called out of darkness, Peter writes, into his marvelous light. We owe, our, we owe taxes. Christians shouldn't skip on paying their taxes. They shouldn't skip on uh, following the law. They shouldn't skip on giving respect to, res 
and even in the ways, even, in the, even when we interact with the authorities, when we interact with our representatives and things, we should do it in a way that's respectful, even when we disagree. And to be clear, there are a lot of ways that we must disagree, but even when we disagree, we're to disagree in a way that is respectful to God's authority and respectful to this belief that God has allowed these authorities to take place and they will ultimately answer to God. Our allegiance belongs. And so we can stand and we can put our hand over our heart and we can say the pledge of allegiance to our flag and we can serve our country and we can swear on a Bible and and take an oath of office and those kind of things, giving an allegiance to an earthly state because we recognize that even that authority ultimately is derived from God's ultimate authority. And so we give allegiance where allegiance is due, respect respect is due, honor where honor is due, recognizing that our greatest allegiance belongs to to God. And then finally, a Christian's response to the state is action, is action. Again, I said this is one that's more explicit. Uh, rather implicit rather than explicit. This one, it's not stated as directly here, but what's, what's really the point of everything that Paul's writing and teaching here? It's that we would take action, that we wouldn't sit idly by and do nothing, but that we would act, that we would step up, that we would seek to be an influence, that we would seek to shine the light, we would seek to be salt in the midst of a world that's lost its way, that we would seek to use our, our, our God-given rights and responsibilities to act in a way that we would point other people to Jesus. We're called to act. But even in how we do that, we're to recognize that God has ordained authorities, God has ordained structures, and that we must, we must respect those authorities and those structures as coming from God. Frankly, this is, this is hard that we have to wrestle with because it's not always black and white. It's not always a clear-cut path for us. What should I do in and, and then you can just name the scenario, name the situation, right? What should I do in this situation? As a Christian, as a person operating under, under this, the conviction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit and, and being subject to a, a kingdom and a king that are not of this world, what do I do? Jesus said to, to Peter on the night of his arrest when Peter drew the sword and Peter was going to fight, he was going to go down swinging. And what was it that Jesus said? Jesus said, Peter, put that away. My kingdom is not of this world. Brothers and sisters, our kingdom is not of this world. And do we need to seek to do everything we can to point people to Jesus and to stand for what is right and to live in a way that is right and to honor? Yes. We, and should we have influence? Yes. Obedience? Yes. Allegiance? Yes. Action? Yes. But let's be reminded that our kingdom is not of this world and that any earthly kingdom, no matter which kingdom it is, no matter which nation, no matter which structure, which government, which institution, any earthly kingdom is flawed because it's made up of flawed people. Even the church. Bear in mind that all of this is immediately on the heels of Paul's teaching about the church. Even the church is flawed. Even our structure in the church, even the way that we operate is flawed because we're flawed, because I'm flawed. I'm not a perfect pastor. You're not perfect church members. We're flawed, and yet we're called to operate in these spaces in a way that we put God first, that we give our ultimate allegiance to Him because He has ultimate authority, and we seek to operate by honoring Him and shining the light of Christ into the darkness of the world around us. May this be the kind of people that we are, people who seek to have influence, people who seek to act, people who operate in these spaces that we're called to 
with obedience and allegiance, but even that is subject to God's ultimate authority in our, in our lives as we seek to honor him and do what is right in all things. And all of this comes from a God who loves us, who gave himself for us, who sacrificed his life so that we would be free, which brings us full circle back to where we began. Ultimate authority belongs to God. And that means that ultimate freedom comes in submitting ourselves to God's ultimate authority. How do we submit ourselves to God's ultimate authority? Well, by surrendering our hearts and our lives to Jesus, by, by confessing our sin, by trusting him as Lord and Savior, by turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, and then seeking to live in such a way that we honor him by putting him first in every space of our lives. May we be a people who honor God by putting him first in our hearts as Lord, and then put him first every day as we seek to live for Jesus. I want to invite you this morning to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to encourage you to think on this. This is really a, in so many ways, this is a sermon that's meant to stir your, 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 your thoughts as much as it is your heart. And I want to stir your heart because I think the, the purpose is always to stir our heart and to move us to respond in obedience and action to what God's calling us to do. But I recognize that this morning, our, my message, this text is meant to get us thinking. It's meant to stir our thoughts and and, and cause us to be a thinking people who consciously, purposefully follow the dictates that God has placed over us. And as you think this morning about your response, as you think about how God would lead you and guide you to respond, can I encourage you? You're not always going to get it right. You're not always going to respond the way that you should and perfectly in any given moment, in every given situation, because you're not perfect. And it's because you're not perfect that you need a Savior, which is why God sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. And through faith in Jesus, by confessing him as Lord and Savior, we are united together with Christ. We become citizens of his kingdom that Jesus spoke about, that kingdom that is not of this world. And now as citizens of his kingdom, we seek to operate as citizens in this kingdom, in this space, in this world, in a way that everything we do would point people to Jesus. May we be a people who put Jesus first in our hearts and seek to live in such a way that we point others to him. And so, Father, as we, as we respond in obedience to your word this morning, we pray that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit, guide our conscience, guide our hearts to be submitted to you, to honor you first and respond to other authorities that you've instituted, recognizing your sovereign power and your authority, your ultimate authority. Lead us, God, to be good citizens of this uh, earthly kingdom as a reflection of what we really believe about our true and greater kingdom that we belong to you. So Jesus, be first in our hearts and our lives and lead us that we would live every day with the mission, the purpose of pointing other people to you. All this we pray in your name. Amen.